Good morning, everyone. My name is Carol, and I have the honor of sharing a little bit of my story with you this morning. I grew up with parents that took me to church, um, and one Sunday at the age of four, I was in Sunday school, and my teacher told me about how Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect life, and then died for my sins or the bad things that I had done. She told the class that he loved everyone so much that he was willing to give his life for us so that we could spend forever with God. Whoa, I thought, he must love me a lot. Like, who would give their life for me? Um, she then told us that it was a free gift, um, and all we had to do was ask God, and it could be ours. Um, There's nothing we could do to earn that gift, and once we had it, there was nothing we could do to lose it. Later that day when I was home, I found a, a private corner in the middle of my parents' kitchen, um, and I prayed in that corner um, that God would forgive my sins or the bad things that I had done and give me eternal life through Jesus. As I grew older, I continued to be a good kid and went to church, Sunday school, Alana, youth group, um, all that stuff, because it was what was expected of me, and my parents wanted me to do that. At home and at church, I was too, or at home and at school with my friends, I was two different people. Um, I struggled with insecurity and jealousy. Um, you see, I was born with a cleft lip and palate, and I couldn't understand why a God who loved me so much would make me this way. Maybe he just messed up, I don't know. I took this frustration out on others around me, um, bringing them down and hoping that would make me feel better about myself, um, which didn't really work. Then fast forward to the summer before my freshman year of high school, I went to a youth conference um, where I was told and believed for the first time that God does not make mistakes, that he loves me perfectly, and that he has a plan for me. It was there that I actually understood what it meant to be a Christian. It's not about going to church or doing good things or being a good person. It's about love. The God of the universe loved me so much that he was willing to give up the thing that meant the most to him so that I could spend forever with him in heaven. Excuse me. How could I not love him back after that? Though I thought he loved me less because of the way he made me. I realized through the years that he made me this way because he loves me. All of the imperfections and scars are what made me who I am today. Um, all the surgeries and doctor's visits gave me a passion to become a nurse, to change the world one patient at a time, to bring healing and joy to those I come into contact with. Looking back now, I'm glad he made me this way. I love my scars because without them, I wouldn't be the person that the Lord has made me today. The Lord used trials and pain to change and make me who I am. Um, I have made mistakes, and I continue to make mistakes. I'm not perfect, but that's okay because he is. Um, one of my favorite passages in the Bible is Romans 5, 3 through 5, and it says, But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Thank you, Carol. I love Carol's story. I love her heart. I love her courage. 
And she just said, if we focus on the external things in life, you know what? We are not going to be happy. And if we focus on our heart, we're going to find contentment and peace and joy. Because God is doing some great things. Carol's going to be leaving uh, this fall to go to Togo, Africa as a missionary nurse. And we'll probably have an opportunity to learn more about that later this year. Okay, Bridge Kids, thank you. We are letting you go to Bridge Kids right now. Today we continue in Mark chapter 7 and encourage you to turn there, beginning at verse 24. We're going to go through chapter 8, verse 13. In his book entitled The Image, historian Daniel Burston argues that Americans suffer from an all-too-extravagant expectations. Listen to what he says about our extravagant expectations. He says, We expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars, which are spacious. Luxurious cars, which are economical. We expect expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, active and reflective, kind and competitive. We expect to eat and stay thin, to be constantly on the move and ever more neighborly, to go to church of our choice, and yet feel its guiding power over us to revere God and to be God. That one's really dangerous. Never have people been more the masters of their environment, yet never has a people felt more deceived and disappointed, for never has a people expected so much more than the world could offer. So what do you think? Is that make sense? Do Americans have extravagant expectations? And then do you sometimes have extravagant expectations when it comes to your life and what you want from God? As a Christian, what expectations do you have of God? The answer probably depends a lot on how well you know the scriptures. Um, All too often, we want God to make us happy and to keep us happy. Um, It's easy to sometimes fall into the trap that if I am not happy, God probably doesn't love me. Or if I'm going through a difficult time, God must not care for me. The people of Jesus' day had expectations on him. Some people wanted Jesus to be their miracle-working celebrity rock star. Some people were considering him to be the Messiah of Israel, and some people saw Jesus' work as satanically inspired. Today, we see the power of God revealed not to impress people, but to help people. In doing so, Jesus will not meet everyone's expectations, and I don't imagine he'll meet everyone's expectations here today. uh, Here's the question. Will Jesus meet my expectations, our expectations, personally. We're going to begin in verse 24, chapter 7, and we see Jesus has power over the demonic. 
power over the demonic. And the situation is in verse 24. Please look at your text. Jesus, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep uh, his presence a secret. So we don't know exactly where Jesus was when he left Probably in Capernaum, that's most often his headquarters and most often where he ends up. And so he's, he's left Capernaum, and he's gone to Tyre, 42 miles northwest of Capernaum. And this is the only time that we know. We probably need a map, right? Map? Capernaum, headquarters. It's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Peter, James, and John are from. And Andrew. And then if you go over to Tyre... Way over to the left on the coast. This is outside of the nation Israel. Today it's Lebanon, okay? So um, that's where Jesus has gone. There's no boat to get there. This is a 42 mile walk if you go by the way the crow flies. Probably didn't have that option. The need is in verses 25 and 26. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. And so we're going to meet a desperate mother uh, with a desperate need to help her child. And uh, moms, you know what you would do for your kid in a desperate situation. Some of you would do everything in your power to help your kid. Um, She falls at the feet of Jesus out of respect. She has deep concern for her daughter, and yet she falls before Jesus out of respect. Verse 26, the woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. The woman was Greek. It doesn't mean she was from Greece. It means she was a Gentile. This is a common term for Gentiles in the ancient world, uh, especially from the Jewish perspective. Greek meaning Greek-speaking. And um, this conversation and this event uh, likely happened. Jesus probably spoke in Greek on this occasion. Um, She was born in Phoenicia. She was definitely not Jewish background. She begged Jesus to drive out the demon. Uh, We don't know how much information she had about Jesus because she is uh, not Jewish and she's not from the land of Israel. And Jesus has never been outside of the country before. And, uh, but here's what we know. Here's what we see. She believes Jesus can do this. She believes that Jesus Christ is powerful. She believes that Jesus is able to do this. And then we see a riddle in verse 27. Uh, What comes next uh, seems a bit puzzling for us. Verse 27, Jesus said... First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, that's a little bit difficult to understand just exactly what Jesus meant. Uh, Here's uh, some clues that we can add. The nation of Israel was called children of God in the Old Testament. They were called the children of God in the Old Testament. We also know that the Jewish people called the Gentiles, the non-Jewish peoples, 
dogs, and it, meant, it was a derogatory term. And we're not comfortable with Jesus using derogatory terms. Jesus uses, um, Jesus uses a term here for dog that's not so much derogatory. It's little dogs, it's puppies. And she's talking about, uh, he's talking about children. Uh, and we're, and, and we're, make, we're kind of talking in two, two places, two, um, two ideas here. There's a physical and a metaphorical idea. And um, Jesus' ministry became, uh, Jesus' ministry began with the Jewish people. Uh, he came to the nation Israel. He was their promised Messiah, clear back hundreds of years earlier. God's plan started with his people Israel, the people of God, and they were called the children of God. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is for the Jew first and the Gentile second. There is a priority system that God gave. And Jesus is making a clue about that right now. And what he's saying is, uh, it's not right to interrupt what I am doing first in bringing the good news to God's people. To stop and go to the second priority. And, you know, even that seems harsh, doesn't it? But... Jesus knows. Jesus sees what's happening in this situation. Um, He's suggesting that he's not come to take his ministry to the Gentiles first. But guess what? This is the first Gentile. This is way before Peter in Acts chapter 10. This is Jesus going outside of Israel, and he has an encounter with this woman. Uh, And he's not using the word dogs in a negative way that one would expect in this situation. So he's lightened it up a whole lot. Uh, The puppies were household pets. When when they talked about a puppy, they thought about this cute, cuddly thing like you might, and and, um, they were in the house. The adult dogs were not in the house like some of you do. Adult dogs were for outside. Some of them were scavengers, and they were, that was a really derogatory concept. The reply is in verse 28. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This woman is worldly smart. She takes uh, the riddle that Jesus gives and quickly responds right back. This reminds me of the woman at the well, um, where she's playing along with Jesus, and she's just interjecting with him, and she's pretty smart. She doesn't, this woman doesn't get mad at Jesus or act as if her feelings are hurt because Jesus seemed to be politically incorrect when he made a reference to the Gentiles being puppies. Um, She allows for Jesus' priority system. How about you? Can you allow for Jesus' priority system in your life? Can you allow God to be God and you're not? Because he has a priority system on how he's going to handle your life. Um, He wants to be first 
and he wants you to be second. The result in verses 29 through 30, then he told her, for such a reply, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. This uh, woman impressed Jesus with her savvy, with her thinking right on the spot and understanding. And this is an amazing thing. Why was she there? She believed Jesus could change things for her daughter. She believed that Jesus was able to do this. And so, uh, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Now, what would you have done? Well, Jesus, you have to come with me. You have to touch my daughter. No, Jesus said, go. What would you have done? What did she do? She went. You know what that is? It's called obedience. It's called living by faith. It's called doing what God says. She, that took a lot of faith, didn't it? To go and ask Jesus and then to leave. And Jesus said, um, the demon has left your daughter. What does that mean? It means it's already happened. It's not going to happen. It's already happened. So go. And uh, we see in verse 30, she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Uh, That's a living by faith. She did what Jesus said. She believed the words of Jesus, and she found her daughter healed by Jesus. In another place, Jesus gives us these words. It's in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. And you'll be reminded of this. Verse 31, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. If you hold to my teaching, if you continue in my teaching, if you follow my teaching, then you're the real deal. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. Jesus also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth, and he has given us truth, and he has called us to follow the truth, and he said it would set us free. So my question is this. Can you trust what Jesus said? The Syrophoenician woman could trust when, he, when Jesus said, go home. She could trust Jesus. Your daughter is healed. She trusted Jesus. And he tells us, continue in his word, and we can know the truth. We're going to have a better view of God and that truth will set us free. Free from sin, free from addictions, free from food addictions, addictions to pornography, addictions to alcohol or drugs, addictions to overspending, addictions to worry. The truth will set us free. You know what the Syrophoenician woman knew? He is able. Jesus is able to do it. Secondly, power to overcome physical challenges. Look at verses 31 through 37, the situation. Verse 31, then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee uh, into the region of the Decapolis. Sounds like a map, doesn't it? Let's see the map again. Okay, so if we were down at Capernaum, we went up to Tyre, 42 miles, Then Jesus walked 20 miles north to Sidon. We don't know what he did there, but we know that he was there. And then he made a right turn 
And he's going to come all the way down past the Sea of Galilee to the Decapolis. That was a pretty long walk, wasn't it? You know what he was doing? He's getting away from the crowds. That's what he went to Tyre for in the first place, to be alone, to be with the disciples and to teach them. So now, you know, he's taking this time out with his disciples, and he's making this really long walk. And he comes down to the Decapolis. And what is the Decapolis? Well, it stands for ten cities that banded together, uh, and they're Gentile cities. This is supposed to be a Jewish territory, but through history, it was, it was, uh, they were captured and uh, repopulated by Gentiles. So this is primarily a Gentile area in the land of Israel. And that's where Jesus is uh, right now. We see uh, the need, uh, verse 32. There are some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. Um, you remember the last time Jesus was in the Decapolis? Uh, he, that's where he um, ran into 2,000 pigs, and they asked him to leave, if you remember the end of that story. Um, but Jesus' reputation is so great that uh, people come to him, and this group brings Jesus a man we don't know. They could be his friends, they could be family, they could be both, and they bring a man who has the need. He's deaf, he cannot hear, and he can hardly talk. And it's not uh, hard to understand if if he was deaf, why it was hard for him to talk, but he apparently had some other speech impediment as well. And they begged for help from Jesus. Why did they do that? Because they thought Jesus was able to help. The healing comes in verses 33 and 35. After he took him aside, and so Jesus is going to take, make some personal space for this man. He takes him away from the crowd. Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. I, he did. He spit and he touched the man's tongue. Um, first he starts with the ears, and he touches the ears of the man. He didn't have to. He, he could have just spoken the words. But the man can't hear. And so he starts so that the man can hear. And Jesus touches him so that he will know it's from Jesus that he will receive his hearing. And then he touches his tongue so that he'll know that it was Jesus that has the power to heal. And um, I don't know why he spit on his tongue. He didn't need to do that, but he did. And he, some scholars think that there was sort of this idea that there was sort of power in spittle in the healing and the saliva. And um, Jesus wanted him to know that the source of this miracle was Jesus himself. Um, and so in verse 30, the, the healing in verse uh 34, continue, he looked up into heaven and with a deep sigh. He said, Ephetha, that's Aramaic, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. All Jesus had to do was speak. And uh, this is exactly what Isaiah the prophet said would happen when the Messiah of Israel showed up. In Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4, listen to this. Isaiah writes, Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong and do not fear. 
Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. That speaks of Jesus coming in judgment. And he is coming in judgment. He hasn't come yet in judgment. He will come to save you. Oh, we understand that. He did come to save us. Verse 5, then the eyes of the blind will be opened. This was a tip-off to Israel. They should be watching out for this special individual where the eyes of the blind would be opened and the ears of the deaf deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shall shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. God's people should have been watching for this. The leaders of Israel should have been watching for this. We see a problem in 36 and 37. Jesus commanded them to tell, not to tell anyone. We've seen this before. But the more he did, the more they kept talking about it. You know, they, they just couldn't bring themselves to silence. And we know from the past, and we've seen it, where Jesus was uh, with his... His goal was not to be a celebrity, miracle worker, rock star. You know, just to impress and attract a big following. Uh, He had some priorities. And sometimes those priorities were to be alone and to rest and to get spiritually recharged. Sometimes those priorities was to spend time with his uh, 12 guys and to pour into them and instruct them and answer questions. And then sometimes he was available to the larger crowds. And when he did a miracle like this, he often wanted a chance to keep moving and keep doing and not just continually bring big crowds. And uh, we even have seen that at times Jesus even veiled by speaking in parables. He didn't make it easy for everyone. If you wanted to know what a parable meant, you had to talk to somebody who knew. Um, Verse 37, people were overwhelmed with amazement. He was... They say, he has done everything well. He even makes a deaf hear and the mute speak. What do you think of that? Jesus does everything well. Do you think Jesus could do everything well in your life? What are your expectations? Quick reminder, Luke chapter 1, verse 35 through 37. Um, You remember when the angel Gabriel came to Mary and announced that she was going to be pregnant. The angel said, The Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, so that the Holy One born to you will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She was too old to have kids. Elizabeth, she too had a miraculous pregnancy. And she, who was said to be unable to conceive in her sixth month, For no word from God will ever fail. What God says will happen. I also like the other translation of chapter 1, verse 37, where it says, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. How well do you know him? Do you believe that? Do you believe God can help you? Do you believe God can heal you? Do you believe God can provide for you? Do you believe God can give you the strength that you need to go through a difficult situation? And, you know, I think often we don't want the strength to go through a difficult situation. We just want the miracle. 
Otherwise, we're just going to kind of mope. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. I did an exegetical paper in seminary on this passage, and I always wondered why I had to do that passage, because it was a real hard one at the time. But I love the passage. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul has a prayer for the believers at Ephesus. They're going to see something that they don't see, that they're going to have a spiritual insight into something they're not getting. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people. And that's, that's a hard to understand. He's talking about all that is coming, the promises, heaven, and everything goes with it, and the 33 things he's given you in salvation and what they all look like in the future. Okay? And then he says, I pray that you'll know this, what he's called you to, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Next slide. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That's the power available to every believer, not just special ones. God is able. Do you believe that? And you're okay however he decides to use it. Let his priorities be his priorities. Are you going to be okay with that? Okay, last section, number three, power to provide for needs, verses 1 through 13, chapter 8. The need, verses 1 through 3. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciple to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Okay, this is going to sound a little familiar. Mark chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000 people. Remember that? Some people don't think that Jesus could have fed 5,000 one day and 4,000 another day. Jesus could have done it every day. Maybe he did it 10 more times. We don't know. We, we do know that he fed these large groups on two occasions. Um, verse 3, if I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. By the way, the location is different from Mark chapter 6. This, uh, this is in the Decapolis. This is significant because most of the people living in Decapolis are Gentiles, not Jewish. So this is probably a highly mixed audience sitting uh, here uh, listening. They've been here for three days. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus did the, did the feeding on the first day. Uh, Jesus determines not to send them home. On, in Mark chapter 6, the disciples tried to get Jesus to send them home. Um, the problem is verse 4. The problem is not enough food in the remote location. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? So the problem is the food shortage, right? No, well, yes, that's a problem. It's real. There's another problem. It's the disciples. They're still learning. There's a high learning curve here for them. Um, Jesus is going to provide one more object lesson to help them understand. Verse 5, the resources. How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. Uh, what are their, relo- their resources? Seven. Seven loaves and what? Jesus. You got seven loaves and Jesus. What do you have? 
got everything you need. The provision, verses 6 and 7. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks. Uh, in Mark 6, he told them to sit down in groups of 50. Um, in Mark 6, he told them that they sat down on green grass. It was a different time of year. There's no green grass here. They sat down on the ground with no grass. Jesus took the seven loaves in his hands. He's going to touch each loaf. Uh, and uh, he, he gives thanks for the seven loaves. It's all they have, seven loaves. And he gives thanks for them. He's thankful for what he has. He's thankful for the resources God has provide, provided for them. This is a great reminder for us. Are you thankful for what God has provided for you every day? Are you thankful for the food that you had for breakfast and you're going to have for lunch and you're going to have for supper and that you um, are in the top 2% of the world's wealth? Are you thankful for your daily bread and his daily provision? Continuing, he broke them and he he broke the bread and he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. So Jesus is going to distribute each loaf of bread to the disciples. It's going to be hands-on. He could have gotten 50 people or 100 people to come from the crowds to carry the bread. Nope, it's going to be the disciples. There are going to be 12 guys, and they're going to get all the bread out to all the people, and they're going to touch each one. They had a few fish, small amount of fish. He gave thanks for them. He's going to pray again. He gives thanks again. And he told the disciples to distribute them. So now they're going to do the fish. They've already done the bread. It's already gotten out to 4,000. Matthew tells us it's 4,000 men. What does that mean? Well, there was actually women there and children there, but they didn't get counted. That's just the way they counted in the ancient world. So Jesus gave thanks a second time. And again, he made the disciples experience hands-on the provision of God. The lesson, verse 8. What's the lesson? The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. What's the lesson? People ate and were satisfied. The people were content with what they had, at least right that instant. And so, just a reminder here, are you satisfied with what God has provided for you? Are you satisfied? Are you content with what God has provided for you? And there were seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And guess who had to pick them up? We could have had crowd control. We could have had a number of people pick up the extra. It's got to be the disciples. Why? This is for them. They need to learn that Jesus is able. You got seven loaves and Jesus. He is able. Now, the seven baskets is a different word here used for baskets, not the same as the 12. They had 12 baskets before, but there are only seven. But these baskets are a whole lot larger than the other 12. And these seven baskets are probably more food than the other 12 baskets that were in Mark chapter 6. The lesson, God is able. Matthew chapter 6, verses 33 and 34. What are your expectations? Matthew 6, 33. 
But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these will be given to you as well. So there's that priority system. Jesus' kingdom first, your kingdom second. If your kingdom is all over the board, you need to try to align it under Jesus' kingdom. What's important to him? What are his priorities? What are his values? And can you align your life under his value system? Therefore, and, and God says, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to provide for your needs. Verse 34, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. We've got a lot of problems. We don't have to worry about them all today. We'll just do one day at a time. For tomorrow, we'll worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That's pretty good mental health right there. Put Jesus' priorities ahead of your priorities, and they will affect your worry in a profound way. The Apostle Paul gives us helpful instruction uh, in Philippians chapter 4, and he says, For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. This is one of the most important things you'll ever learn in growing to follow Christ. Are you content? Is your heart satisfied with what God has given to you? Or do you have to have more? Is it okay where you are today and what God has provided for you today? Is that enough? Are you content? Or is there a big hole in your heart that needs more and more and more? Paul says, I've learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances, because the circumstances change. You can count on that. They're gonna, they're, th- some days... It's going to be awesome, and you're going to have everything you could dream of, and other days it's going to be hard. And Paul says he's learned how to be content. I know, verse 12, what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. And then he says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. You can ask for a miracle, and God may give you a miracle. That is awesome. But what if he doesn't give you a miracle? Can you ask for the strength that you need to go through difficult circumstances? And sometimes we just, we don't want to go there. Just a miracle, Lord, that's all. But what if I give you the strength that you need to handle that difficult situation? Paul says, I can do all things through Christ. Um, and that, you know, we need Jesus' strength to cope with everyday circumstances because, you know, right here in the church family, we have a lot of health issues. We could have people all over the room stand up and say some health issues that they're struggling with. Um, we have money issues. We have people who have some extreme financial circumstances. We have relationship issues. We have emotional issues. We have marriage issues and and uh, parenting issues, and difficulty in the workplace. That's just, that's us. And we need Jesus' strength to do all things through him. Verses 9 and 10, we have a change of venue. About 4,000 were present that day. And uh, Matthew says 4,000 men. And after he had sent them the way, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region and Dalmanutha. So he crossed over, and let's just see that on the map. Got to have the map. So he'd been up to Tyre and Sidon. He came down to the Decapolis. He took this long walk to Decapolis with his 12 disciples. Now he's going to cross the Sea of Galilee to Dalmanutha, and that's an area. So that's where he's headed right now. 
And the challenge is in verse 13. Guess what? It's back to the religious leaders of Israel. Verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. Why? To test him, they asked for a sign from heaven. This was their pattern. This is a group that came from Jerusalem to be on Jesus' case and to test him. And um, they're not, they, they want a sign from heaven. They know Jesus is doing miracles. They know miraculous things are happening. But they're asking for a sign from heaven. It's like, that's not enough, Jesus. We need a sign from heaven. Because they're wanting to, him to authenticate that he's from God. And he's done it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And um, they think he's doing supernatural stuff. They think he's satanically inspired. And verse 12, he sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed the other side. And by the way, For people who live in continued unbelief, Jesus is going to walk away. If you can't trust Jesus, there's going to be a time when he walks away. So, in our passage today, Jesus delivered a girl from demon possession. Her mother believed Jesus was able. Jesus healed a man that was deaf and who could hardly talk because some friends thought Jesus was able. Jesus fed 4,000 men, women, and children because he had compassion and he wanted to show his disciples that he was able. What do you need to trust God for? If God is able, what is it that you need to trust God for? What do you need in your circumstances? Do you need a miracle? Or do you need the strength that Jesus will give to help you walk through difficult circumstances? Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you uh, for Mark chapter 7 and 8 and to see into the life of Jesus one more time to see how people trusted him. They live by faith because Jesus is able. God, we believe that to be true this morning. And I pray that you'll give us hope. People are here in this room are struggling with different things. And they're, some of them are hard things. Some of us are just going through regular, everyday circumstances that aren't too tough. May our faith grow, Father. May our view of you grow that... To, to see and understand that you are able, you are powerful, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is, able, is uh, available to us every day. And that through that strength, we can do whatever you want us to do for Jesus' sake. Amen.